Good morning. Can you guys hear me? All right. Good morning. Thank you for uh, joining us for our last bit, uh, for our finish of the study of the first book of John. If you will, bow with me and I'll open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the ability that we have this, to come together as, uh, as believers in you, Lord, to see what you would have for us from your word, to learn from your word, Lord, that you would give in us your word, that from it uh, we can know things, we can have certainties, Lord. And I just pray that our study today would reveal that and that we'd be encouraged by that, Lord, and that you would just be blessed and glorified with the study today and that uh, you would just grant us wisdom from the study. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you want to go ahead and start, you go ahead and turn to 1 John 5, 13. That'll begin the, the section, the, this last section that we're on. I remember being a little bit anxious, but at the same time, I remember thinking it was about time. Uh, I'd been a, stuck in a place called reception for two weeks, uh, and there I was waiting for enough recruits to show up to arrive to form a training company. And that day had finally come, and we were headed downrange, as they say. And as soon as we stepped off the bus, downrange, things got real. They got real, real fast. I was no longer in Kansas, so to speak. For the next weeks, I, I and the other recruits, we'd go through this process of being broken down by the drill sergeant so we could be built back up, but be built back up as a unit. That being built back up would come later, but it was hard to grasp hard to grasp that in the early weeks of the chaos and conflict of being broken down. We had guys from all kinds of walks of life, different upbringings, different personalities, all trying to handle the process their own way and in different attitudes. And as you're being molded into a soldier that's part of a unit and no longer an individual, the wear and tear is mental and physical. It wasn't long into it when a few guys purposely hurt themselves in hopes of getting out of their commitment. A couple more resorted to being insubordinate, thinking that that would disqualify them and get them a ticket home. Whether you wanted to admit it or show it, the whole experience gets many to second-guess themselves and their decision. You get shook. But, in the midst of this, there was one formation, one formation that we had that provided a respite. And for this formation, we'd gather in the barracks, the front of the barracks near the, the drill sergeant's chambers, and we'd sit on the floor like kids. And it was mail call. It was a totally different formation. It had a totally different vibe than anything else. Here you're secretly hoping that your name is called. And how much, yeah, secretly hoping that your name is called. And why was that? Why were you hoping that your name is called? Hear from a loved one. Recruits and soldiers were anxious to hear from home. They wanted to be encouraged, reminded that someone cares for them, loves for them, maybe even praying for them. And how much, how much more so if you were a deployed soldier or even one engaged in battle or war. We have something similar going on in, the, in this letter here in 1 John. We have believers that are shook, weakened by what they are seeing and experiencing because of false teaching in their midst. So the Apostle John sends us this letter of reassurance. 
I don't know if upon the news of this letter, if they gathered as attentively or as anxiously as soldiers at mail call. But like the letters that soldiers hope to receive, John's letter is not a treatise, but rather it's personal. It's pastoral, referring to his readers and listeners as little children. And like Isaiah and Dave have been highlighting, to get them back on track, John reiterates the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. You hear this phrase a lot when a sports team or an individual or a corporation or an organization makes it back to the top. They have a resurgence in success. Do you know what that phrase is? They get asked the question, how'd you get back here? We got back to the basics. We went back to the basics. Oh no. Something happened here. There it goes. <laughs> the main things, the simple things that they took to heart previously got pushed down, presumed upon. So they had to get back to the basics. And this has been John's approach up to this point. Simply stated, the basics he has reiterated are a right belief in Jesus, right obedience to God's commands, and a right love for one another. In these are the tests, the evidences of true Christianity. His formal argument for the letter ended in verse 12. And if you look at verse 12, you can see that the pronouns, they change. In verse 12, you see he who. Then in verse 13, we moved into I have written. This is not a continuation in the flow of thought from the previous verses. Additionally, in the first verses of the letter, John writes, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Basically, everything that follows from there is for that purpose. And then it's bookend with verse 13. These things I have written, highlighting that everything before this point is also for this purpose. Together, they highlight that John wanted to provide assurance of eternal life that produces fullness of joy. So verses 13 through 21 are sort of a postscript to the letter. P.S. O-B-T-W. John MacArthur points out that these these are not a collection of random thoughts, but a powerful climax to all he has written. A crescendo that builds into, oh, and here's the best part. Here's the best part. Look at uh, verse 13. These things... I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, He shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. 
John parts by leaving believers and believers today with five certainties, five confidences, assurances of faith in Christ. Here is the first certainty, eternal life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John 10.28 says, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. But this is much more than duration. This is partaking in his divine nature. Second Peter 1.4 says, For by these he granted us, he granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. It's a quality of life. Ephesians three sixteen through 19 says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them... Oh, I just... Oh, my bad. Hold on. Let me turn. My copy and paste uh, got awry there. I just said the same thing twice. So let me turn to Ephesians three sixteen through 19. So Ephesians three sixteen through 19, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled up with the fullness of God. One day, our eternal life will be manifested. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it, is not appeared, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. John wants believers to know that they are saved. If you pass these litmus tests, you know that you have eternal life. Ephesians 2.8 says that for by, the gra- for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. This, gift of in- this is a gift of enduring faith. Believe here in verse, teen- verse 13 literally means to keep on believing, to continue to believe more and more. We can, enjoy- we can draw assurance from the fact that God has granted us an unending belief in the name of his son Jesus. Saving faith is never dead. And name right here in verse 13, as used here in verse 13, sums up all the characteristics which make up the person of Christ. It's the wholeness of Christ. All that he is, holy, righteous, good, faithful, true, just, sinless, obedient, humble, merciful, patient, compassionate, loving, self-denying, forgiving, eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, unchangeable, worthy of worship, the supreme object of faith, perfect, Messiah. Because of these, with Paul, we can take Jesus at his word and say, for I know whom I have believed 
And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. But that certainty doesn't stop at eternal life. Look at verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. The believer's second certainty are prayers that are heard and answered. Confidence in verse 14 literally means freedom of speech. It can also be translated boldness or openness. Before him carries this idea of being in his presence. Ephesians 3.12 says, In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. All believers have access to come to God at any time. Not in self-confidence, but in Christ's confidence, one of the commentaries put it. Hebrews 4.16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that they may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is not just mumbling through a list or repeating some formula. Draw near means humbly come into his presence. One biblical scholar notes that if we have not entered into his presence, then we've not prayed. When we boldly and freely approach him with our requests, he will hear us. It's not just an audible hearing. Rather, it's an attentive, favorable, ready-to-come-to-our-aid kind of hearing. When we were younger, we'd get the chance to go to family... Well, not when we were younger. I guess we were younger too. But when the kids were younger, or we'd get the chance to go decompress. We'd get invited to go to a cookout, some family event, some event with friends, and then the kids would go off and they'd play and tune out. They're with their cousins. They're with other kids. They're having fun. We get a chance just to let go a little bit. <clears throat> but in a flash, out of nowhere my wife would pop up and she'd, where are the kids? Playing. What's up? Oh, I heard, and she'd name the name. I heard Lucas. I heard Cora. I heard Elijah. One of them, I heard him cry. And she was ready right there to help. Not everyone jumped up. Not everyone heard. But my wife heard it and knew it was one of our kids down to whose cry it was. And she was ready to respond to that child's needs. Our Heavenly Father knows the cry of His children and He favorably comes to our aid. He understands and He responds. Verse 15, And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. This should encourage us to ask. James 4, 2 tells us, you do not have because you do not ask. If we know that God hears our prayers, then we know our petitions are granted. Now, this doesn't guarantee immediate fulfillment, nor does it mean it will be answered the way we want it answered. It, took, it was 25 years before Abraham held Isaac. Paul prayed three times for the thorn to be removed from his flesh, yet it seems that God denied it but in second or yeah but in second corinthians 12 7 through 9 paul himself approved of how god answered his prayer 
because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. God can answer our prayer for our good by denying our petition and his wisdom supplying our need otherwise. In order to be heard and answered, though, there is a qualifier. If you look back at verse 14, we must ask according to his will. According to his will assumes verse 13 is true of the petitioner. As a matter of fact, if you have the King James or ESV, you'll notice the conjunction in there, and, at the beginning of verse 14. Meaning that verses 14 and 15 are tied to verses to verse 13. If verse 13 is true, then 14 and 15 are true as well. God answers believers and may choose to, but is not obligated to, answer unbelievers. According to God's will also assumes the believer has a life marked by faithful obedience to God. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask from Him, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight, whatever we ask, we receive from Him. I'm sorry, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Lastly, to pray according to His will requires remaining or abiding in Christ. John 15, 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Believing, obeying, and abiding, remaining in Christ, generates a profound intimacy, a oneness that will produce prayers that are a genuine unity of wills. Just as Jesus was one with the Father, John seventeen twenty two, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Abiding in Christ like he abided in the Father is the key to unlocking the power of prayer. Praying God's will has consequences, <laughs> unfortunately, right? God's will is that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. And in order to do this, the Lord has to chasten us. He's got to discipline us. He's got to put us in the fire. He's got to turn the heat up to refine us. And that's, <laughs> that's not an easy thing to think about. But still, Romans 12 and 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Daniel Aiken says, Praying according to God's will 
praying according to God's will is wanting God to give you what you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. I'll repeat that. Praying according to God's will is wanting what God is wanting God to give you what you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. When believers are in communion with God, he will put desires in their heart that are in accordance to his will. Psalm 37, 4 through 5. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. Now, this gets a little bit difficult, but as it relates to the certainty of heard and answered prayer, there's another caveat. Verse 16 says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. Scholars agree that this is a most difficult passage to interpret. So they avoid dogmatic views. Here, what we have done, though, is we've moved from petition, my needs, to intercession, others' needs. And anyone in the context means any true believer. If a believer sees his brother, true or professing, committing a sin not leading to death, he is to pray for that person, and God will give life to that person. Notice the direction here is to go directly to God. Not the pastor, elder, deacon, not anybody in the congregation, not gather a group, oh, we need to pray for so-and-so. None of that. Now, there is a time and place when others need to get involved, but in this instance, you go directly to God and pray for their restoration. This is always God's will, restoration. As it relates to not leading to death and giving life, it's not clear whether it's physical or spiritual death or physical or spiritual life. One logical biblical view, again, avoid the dogmatism, is that God does not always immediately punish sin with death. We also know that believers have sin. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. Therefore, we could be talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. Brothers and sisters in Christ can fall into sin, but salvation and spiritual death are not at stake because they are in Christ. And it's our duty as brothers and sisters to pray for this person to help restore them. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Therefore, if a believer prays for another believer that falls into sin, God will hear and bring about restoration. The other believer is still obligated to confess, still obligated to repent. But on the other hand, at the end of 16, God will not answer the prayer for someone sinning a sin leading to death. John doesn't forbid praying for this person. He's just stating that the prayer will not result in the outcome expected. Again, the difficulty here is that John does not give us any more detail or specifics 
This lack of detail suggests that his readers understood the difference between sin not resulting in death and sin resulting in death. These two categories, or the difference between these two categories or distinctions of sin. As it relates to sin leading to death, here here are some views. Some say that it could be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, pointing to Matthew 12, 31 through 32. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either this age, in this age or the age to come. Or a sin so serious that God takes the life of the one that commits it. Acts 5, 1 through 11. We hear about Ananias and Sapphira. In 1 Corinthians eleven thirty, we see that there are those that abuse the Lord's table and are asleep. <clears throat> Could be unrepented sin. Guy Woods notes this as a disposition of heart, a perverseness of attitude, and an unwillingness of mind to acknowledge one's sin and from it turn away. Such a disposition effectively closes the door of heaven in one's face. Either way, whatever this sin is, be, whatever this sin is, be it specific or habitual, John is saying it is futile to make intercession because God has already made the final decision about this person's future. Since he made two distinctions about sin, draw, now John draws a line in verse 17, reminding believers that all sin, whether le- leading to death or not leading to death, is unrighteous. <clears throat> As such, believers need to confess and forsake all sin. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Not only do we need to confess and forsake him, we need to abstain from it. 2 Timothy 2.19 Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Believers can be certain that they have eternal life, that their prayers are heard and answered. And thirdly, Believers can have certainty that they have victory over sin. Verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. The better interpretation is that no one who is born of God habitually sins. This is a reiteration of of 1 John 3, 9. One who is born of God, one who... One who is born of God does not practice sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Believers are not characterized by the pattern of sin. Turn to Romans 6. Believers are not characterized by a pattern of sin. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? 
<clears throat> Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you present your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin... And enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The unredeemed are slaves to sin, but we, having been freed from sin, are slaves to righteousness, resulting in our sanctification and everlasting life. Back to verse 18. John is affirming the purity of our lives, not our perfection. John MacArthur says that it's not the perfection of our lives, it's the direction of our lives. David Atkin puts it this way, future glorification, our perfection, impacts present sanctification, our practice. More importantly, a true believer can never fall back into the pattern of sin never fall back into the pattern of sin because he who was born of God keeps him. This is the second reference in this verse to one who is born of God. This one born of God is Christ. The NASB capitalizes he. Some of the other versions like New King James and ESV, they do not. But this is Christ, a reference to Christ. Proverbs 3.26 
For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 But the Lord is faithful and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. John 6.37-39 All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me, that all that He has given me I lose nothing, but raise it, raise it up on the last day. Jesus protects those who are his. Our quest for righteousness is supported and sustained by Jesus himself. He will not fail to keep the redeemed. So much so that the evil one, Satan, does not touch him. He can tempt, harass, but he cannot lay a hold of. He can't fasten his grip on the believers. Romans eight thirty one through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or the sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things... We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a victory. It's quite the victory. What a victory believers have. In addition to having certainty of eternal life, heard and answered prayer, victory over sin, believers have the privilege to know that they belong to God. Verse 19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. One world, two realms. You are either of this world and lying in the power of the evil one or you're a child of God. You're an alien, a stranger, a citizen of heaven. There's no middle ground. There's no other options. Luke eleven twenty three. Christ says, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus also tells us in John fifteen nineteen that he chose us. He chose believers out of this world. We're no longer of this world. And because of our choosing out of the world... The world hates us. The world hates us. You don't have to dig deep in the news, in articles, and social media to see that the world hates us. Believers are hated for who they are and what they are trying to do as Christ followers. But we don't have to fret. We do not have to fret because earlier in the letter, John gives us this great encouragement. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We 
belong to God, not the prince of this world. Believers can be certain of that. Believers can be certain that they have eternal life. Their prayers are heard and answered. They have victory over sin. They belong to God. And lastly, that Christ is the true God. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. John ends his letter the same way he began it. Talking about Jesus. We know the Son of God has come. This confidence comes from genuine reality. Things that actually happened in history. The Son of God has come. How credible and powerful. These readers know John. And their own near recent history would testify that John was with Jesus. An apostle of Jesus. They are getting eyewitness testimony affirming the certainty of Emmanuel. God with us. From the apostle whom Jesus loved. The verb translated come, heiko, is in the present tense indicating that Jesus has come and is still present. Our faith is not theory. It's not an idea. It's not a thought that does not have physical or concrete existence. The Christian faith is rooted in practical truth, historical events. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. In doing so, He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Luke 10.22 All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. We haven't just been granted knowledge. We have a personal union Verse 20 continues, And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, "But But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. There is only one way to know God, the true God the living God, and it's through Christ. It's through Christ that God has enabled us to know Him, to accept Him as true. And this is the true God and eternal life. Verse 20 ends, this is the true God and eternal life. The SV and NIV have He capitalized is the true God and eternal life. Three times John uses the word true in this verse. Truth is important. Truth is important in a world full of Satan's lies, especially in a world in the midst of a bunch of false teaching. And the third mention of true is the most significant. Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. 
and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. John ends with a contrast, a concluding loving warning. If there's a true God, there must be false gods. So, verse 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Idol worship, physical statues, relics, was still in practice during these times. But nowadays we understand this to mean anything people elevate above God. Idols of the heart. This, this is sin. Talking about man's nature, John Calvin said, it's a perpetual factory of idols. Objects of idolatry, they're not always bad things. They're, they're good things. But when we make, the, we make these good things bad things because we turn them into God things. Nothing more can get in the way of Christian certainties, Christian assurances, than allowing someone, something, some worldly concept to be elevated above God. Idols promise, but never deliver. So take, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 Only Christ can truly and eternally satisfy. John 14.14 14. John 4.14 14. Believers in Christ can have certainty that they have eternal life, their prayers are heard and answered, they have victory over sin, they belong to God, and that Christ is the true God. In John 3.16 we kind of credit John, the Apostle John with providing a Bible, providing the Bible in a nutshell. For all. That's for everybody. But here in John, 1 John 5.13, he provides the Bible in a nutshell for believers. For believers. And as I wrap up, I think it's important to note that John was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we're dealing in context of his letter and these last verses, but we can't ignore the fact that he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Providentially, this inspired letter is part of the canon of Scripture. As a believer, you're not just hearing from John. You're hearing from God. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. My wife and I had the privilege to audit some classes uh, under Dr. John Whitcomb. And this dude, he stands out in my mind to this day as what I would call, no offense to anybody in this room, a supreme example of Christ. A supreme example of Christ. And I, and I think about that, like, what was different about him? What stood out? Like, I don't understand why, why he had this impact on me. And it was his joy. He had joy. And it was an, a crazy kind of joy. It was a legit joy. Not the uh, fresh off the set of Ozzy and Harriet kind of joy. You know, that superficial Christianity stuff of, oh, golly gee, guys, and I'm just so happy. It was literal joy. And I remember we were, he was teaching us Daniel, and there were some hard passes and passages in Daniel and then he would, you know, go to Scripture to prove, 
scripture. And he would get to other verses and he would light up, just light up almost like he would jump for joy. Thank you, Lord. You guys ever been in a situation where somebody's relaying a message to you? They're not the author, they're not the whatever, but they're the middleman. And in the middle of the message, the actual person shows up and, oh, hey, you get to hear it straight, straight from the person themselves. Oh, what an honor this is. God would show up in the scriptures for him that way. But we'd be teaching that he would just jump for joy as if God was standing there like, oh, let me explain this to you. Let me explain this to you. And he would talk like God was in the room. Much like a soldier received and read their letters from home, these letters were personal. They were real words spoken to them from their loved ones. So it is with Scripture for believers. God has provided them to you that believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can have assurance for eternal life. How do you approach them? How do you approach them? Do you approach them academically, like it's some English literature book? Do you you approach them personally, like they're words from a God who loves you and who has given you promises and certainties? Bow your heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for just this study in John, Lord, and uh, just what you have done for me and having to dig into this, Lord. And just thank you for other Christian examples we have of right living, abiding in Christ to a point that you can see the effect that the Word and that Christ has on other individuals, Lord. I just pray that we leave here strengthened, encouraged, that your Word is just... It's more than reading. It's, 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 it's not just books, Lord. It's, it's, uh, it's not just tactical, but that it's truly hearing from you, encouragement, and everything that we need for life and godliness, Lord. Just thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that we, through your spirit, are even able to come together to talk about these things and even understand them, Lord. And I just pray that we would walk away with wisdom today and a renewed spirit for hearing from you in the scriptures. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.